You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Hello friends, James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, out in the beautiful sunny climes of western Japan. And as you can see, there are still some, a few cherry blossoms hanging onto the trees here. So I thought, why not? It's a beautiful day. Why not get outside and enjoy a little sunshine? I am blessed to have a job where I can do that from time to time. So I'm going to take advantage of that. Thank you so much for joining me. This is Questions for Corbett, that regular series where you ask the questions and I provide the answers. And as always, many ways to get your comments and questions in, perhaps most notably for non-members of the site. You can always contact me on the contact form at CorbettReport.com, but more importantly for members of CorbettReport.com, who, by the way, make this website possible, so thank you very much. You can leave your question for next time in the comment section of this edition of QFC. And on that note, let me stress, please do leave your question in the comment section of questions for Corbett so that I can see it next time I'm going to collect all the questions because sometimes people leave questions for me in different comments in different places all around the site. I'm not going to see them by the time it comes for, to uh, questions for Corbett. So please put them in the questions for Corbett comment uh, field. Um, and on that note, I will note that uh, Home Remedy Supply, who's always helpful in the comments, was helpful again. He took one of the questions from that someone left somewhere else and put that in the questions for Corbett. Number 43, is data really the new oil comment thread? So thank you, Home Remedy Supply, for that. Specifically, he posted a question from Joseph, who was asking, as a fellow historian, I am wanting your take on something I've read recently, that as a point of global conflict, the First World War could be considered the War of the Austrian Succession. The more I understand about this conflict, the sillier the story seems to get. Thoughts? Uh, I'm assuming that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek question about, you know, the, the old story that World War I started with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, which... If you've seen the World War I conspiracy by now, if not, why not? But if you go to CorbettReport.com slash WWI and watch the World War, listen to World War I conspiracy, or read the World War I conspiracy, you'll see that that's not exactly the whole story. So I thought that, I think that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek reference to that. If there's more depth to that question, Joseph, please let me know. Um, so... Speaking of the comments section from the previous questions for Corbett, there was a lot of discussion among the Corbett Report members about the question for you from last time. As you'll know, I often ask a question for you at the end of these podcasts. Last time, there was a question from James, not me, a different James, asking about ethical investing and how do you save a nest egg, but maybe not in a horrible unethical way. So I was putting that question out to the audience. There was a lot of discussion about that. So I hope you'll go and read it through. A lot of back and forth and different ideas. A couple that I want to highlight. First, there was a number of recommendations from different people for che uh, to check out the work of Catherine Austin Fitz, who of course is at Solari.com. I've referenced a number of times. And in fact, I would recommend a conversation that I had with her several years ago now on the breakaway civilization, where we did talk about that idea of how do you create a decentralized local economy where you can actually support real people around you that you want to support, put your energy and time and money into something valuable. Uh, so we did talk about that specifically, so I'll recommend people that, and I'll link that in the show notes. Also, there was a user, Flatspokes, who uh, had an interesting, thought-provoking post that uh, urged that we stop believing the lie that we need their jobs. I stop believing of yourself as that you are only an employee and that's all you can ever be for some other employer who's going to give you a job or not give you a job and they're going to choose the terms. It's that mindset that can hold people back and I think that aligns very well with 
the essential message that I was getting across in my episode on solutions, the peer-to-peer economy, which I will recommend. If you haven't checked it out, it's still an exceptionally important part of this puzzle. So all of that aside, let's move into the questions from the last questions for Corbett, specifically from the Corbett Report members, the first of which is from Drazen. Uh, who says, this is not a question so much, but an observation for your comment. I find it intriguing that various mouths of Sauron, I like that, in the establishment media preach democracy, democracy, all hail democracy. Yet when there is a popular issue that seemingly goes against establishment desires, the same or other mouths of Sauron proclaim, we must find a way to counter populism, such as the Brexit situation and the rise of nationalist parties in Europe. Do these people not realize their hypocrisy here? Democracy equals populism, or am I missing something? Okay, thank you for that question, Drazen. No, you're not missing something. You're hitting the nail squarely on the head. Yes, um, this is best exemplified in the case of the EU, which I've gone through many times, but it is just so in your face when they had the EU constitution and because it was a constitution, the various uh, constitutions of this constituent uh, nation states meant that they had to have referenda on it. So they had a referendum in in France and in Holland, rejected, rejected, rejected. No one wanted this EU constitution. So they're like, okay, well, that doesn't mean we're not going to do it. It just means we're going back to the drawing board. They come back with the Lisbon Treaty. It's a treaty. See, there's no constitution anymore. It's a treaty. So now, magically, we bypass the referenda of all these countries that were saying no. One country gets a vote, Ireland. And guess what? They vote no. They say no, we don't want your Lisbon Treaty. Uh, and by, by the framework that uh, was proposed in the treaty, that should have been the end of it. Okay, well, it's dead. But no, they said, no, Ireland, you didn't vote the right way. So they give it to them again. And they, uh, I, I went through it at the time. There was all sorts of illegalities in the way that they did this. They broke their own phony laws for these referenda. But anyway, they essentially made Ireland vote again until they got it right. And this time they got it right. Yeah, you said yes. Okay, great. Yay, EU. So that's an example of this. And of course, we're seeing it now with Brexit and other things. You didn't vote the right way. We're going to control demolition it until and then give you another referendum so you'll vote the right way next time. Your vote doesn't matter. It doesn't count. It's not about the will of the people or any such nonsense. It's about the will of the oligarchs. And when you're on board with that and you vote for the will of the oligarchs, hey, great, yeah, democracy. And when you don't, populism, evil populism. This is the perfect deconstruction of the democratic, undemocratic, good, bad, virtuous, uh, evil binary that, that, that has been constructed in the rhetoric of the p- politicians who want to keep us enslaved in our minds by thinking it's so, oh, you know, it's the will of the people. The people have spoken. It's democracy. This is good. And we're bringing democracy to the Middle East and all of this nonsense, which we know transparently absolutely is nonsense. No one really believes this, but it, we're meant to at least imagine that somebody out there believes this. Um, but here is the deconstruction of it. No, it's not this democratic, undemocratic binary and all of that. I mean, even disregarding that, well, actually, a constitutional republic is different than democracy and all of that. No, I mean, but be, even beyond that nuance, no, it's not about that. It's not about democracy, non-democracy, because democracy would be the actual will of the people, which they clearly undermine any chance they get and denigrate as populism when it's not right. When you vote the right way, it's democracy. When you vote the wrong way, it's populism. I mean, keep that in mind. So uh, thank you for pointing that out, Drazen. I think it's an important thing to keep in mind. Let's move on. Another question from a corporate report member, this one, T-Vision's Real Politic, who asks, uh, great stuff as always. As I was slogging through the Anglo-American establishment, I came across the name Percy Corbett of Prince Edward Island, Canada. Professor Quigley tells us that he was one of the three most important Canadian members of the Milner Group. Just wondering if there's any family connection. Fully aware of the old adage, 
You can choose your friends, but you sure can't choose your family. Thanks for all your extraordinary work, V. All right, thank you, V. Thank you for pointing that out. I am very glad that someone actually read the Anglo-American establishment and whose eyes didn't glaze over in the long list of names and, and of affiliations and things. Yeah, that kind of jumped out for me when I first read this book. Yeah, oh, Percy Corbett, really, Corbett. So a Canadian Corbett happens to be one of the most influential members of the Milner Group, at least in the early part of the 20th century, so about a century ago. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? Uh, absolutely no relation to me. My father and my mother, who took my father's name, obviously, uh, were the first and only Corbetts that I know of in our Corbett family to come to Canada, and that was in the 1970s. So Percy Corbett, no relation to me, but interesting, isn't it? The name sort of jumps out. And yeah, it does, yeah, it is interesting. Uh, that, that's one of those moments where it's, it's for a stupid and inconsequential reason, but you feel like a connection to the history there. Oh, you know, no, a Corbett, interesting, anyway. I'm, anyway, I'm just glad that people actually are reading these books. Um, I'm constantly pleading people to do it. And actually, I did think of that at the time. I thought of that as a test. You know, I could see if anyone will actually have read this because they'll notice that name, won't they? All right, um, let's move on to Cafe Swada. Cafe Swada. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> no idea how to pronounce that. Anyway, uh, he or she or it or they write, Hi James, have you ever heard of Unit 731? I did watch the episode General Shiro of the series The Blacklist, Season 6, Episode 7, the other day and was triggered by the name. Happens to be the Surgeon General Shiro Ishii from born June 25th, 1992 to died October 9th, 1959, a Japanese army medical officer, microbiologist, and the director of Unit 731, a biological warfare unit of the Imperial Japanese Army involved in forced and frequently lethal human experimentation during the Second Sino-Japanese War, according to Wikipedia. Uh, like many other former scientists at Unit 731, he was granted immunity and recruited by the United States to conduct more research after the Second World War ended. The Americans did not try the researchers so that the information and experience gained in bioweapons could be co-opted into the U.S. Biological Warfare Program. That's another Operation Paperclip. Is there any other information about Unit 731 uh, than, than what I can read at the Wikipedia page? Okay, thank you for the question. Uh, a very interesting and important one. Uh, yes, I have heard of Unit 731, and I, I know I've talked about it at least once. I, I remember, I think it was in New World Next Week, but you'll, someone can dig it up out there, uh, where I mentioned an, a Prime Minister Abe photo op, I think it was about six years ago now, probably around 2013, where he was sitting in a fighter jet cockpit, you know, with the hood open, you know, going like this. It's just one of those stupid photo ops that uh, leaders like to take uh, to make themselves feel powerful. But interestingly, this particular fighter jet he was sitting in was numbered 731, and it was right there, right below where he was sitting with his thumb up, thumb up um, in a way that absolutely guaranteed, even if by some stretch of the imagination, Abe didn't realize the optics of that. Someone in his entourage would have said, oh, maybe we shouldn't put him in the 731 plane, right? A anyway, I remember noting that at the time because it was clearly a message of sorts and it was picked up by the Korean newspapers and Chinese newspapers and others. Look, look at they're throwing it in, in our face again. Uh, yeah, Unit 731's horrible stuff, um, mental mental rot to read about um, live vivisections and other horrific experiments. 
that were conducted. Uh, the, a, a kind of overview or intro for people who've never heard anything about this, unit731.org, but there's not, it's not really academic. There's no sources. It's just kind of general summaries and a few pictures. But um, as I understand it, all of the evidence for this obviously destroyed at the time of the end of the war. So uh, now all we have to go on is the, the people who talked about it, the people on the inside, uh, so there's, of course, as with everything, there's there's questions and bickering back and forth about what 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 can be substantiated and what can't, and revisionism and what have you. But at any rate, there was a Unit 731. There was General uh, General uh, Shido was in charge of it, and he did, as it's noted, well, he uh, him and several of the others involved in in Unit 731 did escape uh, persecution. They were granted immunity at the Tokyo Tribunal. Um, that's public record. Uh, as to what happened to General Shiro, I know some, or at least one source, just kind of in an unattributed, unsourced way, said that he did do some uh, bioweapons advising to in Maryland. Um, but I, I don't know the source of that. Uh, others say that he just set up a private practice in Japan and continued practicing just medicine. Um, anyway, uh, the, the Unit 731 experiments in their and their findings were what granted these people immunity. They handed them over to the U.S. so that they could better use them for their own biological warfare purposes, of course. Isn't that how it always rolls? So anyway, a very important, interesting subject. Uh, but I don't know of any... I haven't read a, any books on the subject. I haven't read uh, any scholarship on it. So if anyone knows a good scholarship on this, I'd be interested to hear it, I'm sure. Uh, Cafe Suwada would as well. Um... All right, let's turn to some more questions, this time uh, one coming via audio from the SpeakPipe application on the contact page of CorbettReport.com. Do you think that people in the truth movement should stop posting on the internet and actually do activism, like on the street, like protesting or like one-on-one or doing presentations? I say this because I fear that if people do too much activism on the internet, that's going to only attract people who's looking for the truth already while we can try to reach new people. Thank you for the question, John. But um, really, my, uh, my reaction to this, if I could encapsulate it in a meme, would be the why not both meme. <laughs> yes, uh, you make an important point and one that should not just uh, be glossed over. Absolutely, real-world, actual, physical activism is important and perhaps becoming neglected as people more and more more turn online and thus think of activism as being online. But yeah, no, real-world, face-to-face interaction with human beings, of course that is an absolutely essential part of spreading any message and providing the social proof that is, to whatever extent, People might uh, poo-poo it. It is necessary to give social proof to the idea, oh, there are other people out there that think this. Wow, maybe it's not crazy. Maybe I can talk about it to other people. It is an important part of the process, and there's people who do that activism. My hat's off to them. It's absolutely important. Um, I'll note a corporate report member, I just mentioned him, Home Home Remedy Supply, has talked about the activism that he's done uh, in Texas for decades now and different 9-11 actions and things that he's been involved in. So uh, I love to hear that kind of thing because it absolutely is important. But that's not to say that online activism isn't important. I mean, you, you I said something about uh, we can only reach out to the people who are look, already looking for the truth. Well, yeah, okay, but that's important too. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, 
even if it's only preaching to the choir, and I don't think it is, I, I can tell in the last 12 years I've been doing this, the choir has been growing, and I think it's because people are, are preaching. But um, even if you're only preaching to the choir that already exists, well, the choir still needs to hear it as well. I mean, there is, there is value to it. So it's not an either-or, but you're right. I mean, to the extent that real-world activism is being neglected in favor of online activism, that could be a danger. So I, I agree. It's important. All right. Uh, let's move on to a question uh, from Mary, who says, uh, do you have any thoughts on the arrest of Julian Assange? Looks to me that this arrest is a total disaster for free speech and anyone who is a whistleblower. Uh, yes, Mary, I do have some thoughts. And yes, essentially, yes, you are correct that what is happening, this, this process, the extradition and whatever trial that eventuates in whatever kangaroo court, is absolutely going to be important for the question of journalism and whistleblowing and free speech and all of this. Uh, it's going to be used to set various precedents. Now, keep in mind, this is completely aside from what I happen to think about the Julian Assange WikiLeaks saga and all of that, which people will know if, if not, go back in the archives. Uh, basically, since the time that WikiLeaks started getting uh, international mainstream attention and started working with known liars like the New York Times and others to publish the materials and Julian Assange started dissing 9-11 truthers as, as freaks and weirdos that he didn't want to be associated with and all of that, all of that and uh, just the whole WikiLeaks hype and everything, people know I'm highly skeptical of that story. And at the very least, it doesn't even have to be that Julian Assange is himself some sort of intelligence asset or knowingly collaborating, although that's certainly possible. Um, but just the nature of what WikiLeaks is and the way it operates, it is perfect for an intelligence cutout. Even if it doesn't even know it's being used as an intelligence cutout, feeding information to it strategically to allow certain information here or to get direct attention there, um, whereas the real action is happening elsewhere. It's, it's so perfect for it that, in fact, I know, I know that I saw, I saw, I 1,000% know that I saw an interview... Um, it was a panel discussion, but Zbigniew Brzezinski was on the panel. It was on his daughter's program, I'm pretty sure, Morning Joe with, with uh, Mika Brzezinski. Uh, and I want to say around 2011-ish. And I know I saw this, where Brzezinski himself was saying, you know, WikiLeaks is the perfect thing for some intelligence agency to use as a cutout and to, uh, to strategically leak information and blah, blah, blah. And he was laying out the whole case exactly as I would have laid it out, which is why I'm pretty sure when I was doing my uh, uh, Meet Zbigniew Brzezinski Conspiracy Theorist podcast, where I was pointing out, you know, Zbigniew Brzezinski, he clearly knew a thing or two about conspiracies, and he talked eloquently about them and talked about them openly uh, many times. Uh, it's just that he was allowed to do so because he was serious and pooed them and gave the right lip service, but no, he was definitely involved in some conspiracies. Um, and, and so I was looking for that clip at that time, and I could not find it again. So if anyone can dig that up, you uh, hats off to you, please do dig up that, that clip that I'm talking about. Again, I think it was Morning Joe, I think it was 2011. I hope that's enough to go on. But anyways, Zbigniew Brzezinski was talking about it at the time, and I happen to agree with his analysis. Yeah, WikiLeaks could very well be an intelligence operation. And again, it doesn't have to be knowingly collaborating uh, with other intelligence agencies, although it certainly could. I mean, there's just so many unknowns that I don't know why we have to go around championing this person that we don't know 
what his situation is and who he's been compromised by or not or who he's working for or not or whatever. All of that is irrelevant to the question of the legal proceedings that go from here because the real point is to set a precedent for what will be allowable for genuine whistleblowers and genuine leakers, whether Julian is or is not. It, it is the precedent that's going to be used against others in the future, which is why we have to be absolutely have our attention on this and not allow this to go the wrong way. Uh, because, again, this is an, an example that they're going to set. And the, the things, I mean, you've read the indictment by now, surely. The things in there are ridiculous. Curious eyes never run dry, in my experience. It is now illegal to say that? That is insanity. There's nothing in that indictment that, is, that has any substance to it. So, and the maximum penalty, supposedly, for what he's being charged with in the indictment at any rate is five years. Do you really think this is all going to eventuate in some five-year prison sentence? I don't know. There's going to be a million twists and turns between now and then, and it's all speculation at this point. So, anyway, the point is, leaking is perfectly, well, leaking to the press, for the press to go and publish it or to put that out uh, is perfectly legal. And the press is anyone, anyone with a website, anyone who has a voice or a platform. And since we're in the social media age, everyone's a journalist. This applies to everyone. It is free speech. It has been done for ages. The mainstream establishment is all on board about stopping this example because, again, regardless of whatever backdoor intelligence shenanigans are going on here, the point is they want to stop this from really happening. And that's the point. So when a real leaker comes forward with, with real 9-11 truth leaks or whatever, uh, they'll be able to shut it down instantly. That's the precedent they want to set. So it is an important case. I will be keeping track of it. Uh, question in from Jason. I wanted to know what tips and tricks you might have to help me and possibly other novice truth seekers secure my computer, accounts, data, etc. I want to know what are the foundational basic things I ought to do and where should I start? So far, I've bought a VPN and downloaded alt internet browsers like Brave and Ice Dragon and used gaffer tape to cover my laptop camera. What else should I do? I have a Windows 10 computer. Should I use a new OS entirely? Should I encrypt my computer's drive? Where should I sign up for new email addresses so I'm not relying on draconian big tech companies like Google anymore? And with any of these changes, would I still be able to use programs like Adobe Premiere so I can make videos? Are there any safe cloud services you recommend? I have an Apple iPhone. Should I replace it or jailbreak it or something? Excellent. Thank you for the questions, Jason. You've clearly put some thought and time into this and started researching it, so hats off to you for moving in that direction. It is the direction we should be moving in. But then there comes the point in which you have to really decide, really, really ask yourself, how far do I want to go with this? Do I really, how much do I want this privacy? Because it is, I'm telling you now, I want you to know, it is not going to be easy to even accomplish the kind of bare bones basic privacy security that we should be practicing as a rule um, in general. And I'm going to illustrate that in a moment, but I do want to make the point that I always make, uh, it was when I had John Young on the program years and years ago to talk about WikiLeaks, actually, amongst other things. He said that the idea of online anonymity is a pipe dream. And I tend to believe that in the sense that if you have an NSA or some with, something with similar uh, resources to devote to tracking you down and surveilling you, they're probably going to get in. You know, you're 
whatever router you're using VPN, they're probably going to have the backdoor key. But that doesn't mean that we should just give up on, oh, okay, well then we should just do everything with the default. No, 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 no. Because of course there are, I mean, even just script kiddies and hackers and regular criminals to deal with, let alone the idea of just handing your data willy-nilly over to all these companies just because, ah, what are you going to do? No, 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 no. It is something to take seriously. But as I say, it's not going to be easy. It will require a complete revolution in the way that you do everything online. And if you think I'm joking, just take a look at an example, just a little slice of what you might have to do to achieve a little bit of a modicum of privacy. Building the second compartment is easy. We're going to create a new Firefox profile for desktop with the exact same settings and add-ins. Just go to About Profiles, create a new profile and name it Social Identity. You can also remain your default profile to Professional Identity. Open root directory and copy all the files from your default profile to your social profile. If you want to be extra sure none of the browser data are shared, you can manually change all the settings again. You will use this profile only for your social media accounts except for YouTube. If you want to step it up, you can disable all third-party requests globally. This is where I would recommend applying more granular tinkering and only allow scripts specific for each social site. Only allow Reddit scripts for Reddit, Facebook for Facebook, etc. Remember that all your likes, shares, comments and views will be recorded, stored and sold forever. Okay, now as I say, that's only a little sliver of a slice of an excellent video that was put together recently by the YouTube channel The Hated One on uh, securing online privacy in 2019, whatever the title is. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes, of course, so you can go in directly to that video and watch the whole thing. But he's talking about compartmentalization, uh, privacy through compartmentalization, which is a, a, a tactic um, it's not the be-all and end-all, but it's part of what you would have to do to start really securing your online identity and at least protecting some degree of privacy from the various big tech companies. Again, if you are a whistleblower with the, you know, the inside skinny on 9-11 or something, this, and the NSA is after you, you know, this might not be uh, ultimately protective, but it is something that we can start doing to start, stop just willy-nilly giving all our data to all these companies that we know are buying and selling and trading it and using it in various nefarious ways every single day. But as I say, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard, very difficult, and it will require a complete transformation in all your standard practices. You will not be able to just turn on the computer and start surfing. You have to think about what you're doing and where you're doing it and why. And, and so what, what settings do I need for each and everything you do? Watch the full video there and you'll start to appreciate how deep this goes. But I'm glad you're on the track. It's the right track to follow. Um, but it's a hard one. Okay, let's move to the next question from HGH who writes, I've been watching your videos for a while and I heard something about cap and trade and the big money some people can make from climate change propaganda. Can you explain this in details in a video? Maybe it's foolish of me, but I can't connect the dots here. Thank you for the question, HGH. I know it's one that a lot of people have. What do you mean? No, the scam is clearly in big oil and selling you gasoline so that they have the monetary incentive. Why is there a monetary incentive to, for people to promote climate change? No, it's the exact opposite. Yeah, that's the surface level analysis. It's not true. And I've talked about it before. Um, if you want the big picture of this and how it fits in and what it means for the real transformation of the economy that the, the climate change scam is bringing through, watch why Big Oil conquered the world. Um, for more granular detail on the 
swindle aspect of this and how people can make money through cap and trade and all of this, I will recommend an editorial I did a number of years ago. And now for the $100 trillion bankster climate swindle, which if you insist on it being video, was made into a video by Matt at Convince Yourself Media. Thank you, Matt, for that. Um, I'll put the link into that video so that you can watch the editorial if you prefer that. Um, but it's very important that people wrap their minds around this because this is where the, the big, big money is going these days. The post-carbon economy is for all the marbles. You know, you want to talk $100 trillion, that's where the money's going. That's why Saudi Aramco is now opening their books and going public and all of this. And, you know, look, oh, here's the profits we make, but we're worried about climate change and what it'll do to our bottom line. Well, yeah, the individual oil companies will suffer as companies, but the people who created them and run them and uh, the big boys are long since divested themselves of that particular lifeline and they're preparing themselves for the new economy. Speaking of which, the next question comes in from Terry who writes, is climate the new Russia? That's a good one. Uh, not sure if you'd heard about the Reserve Bank of Australia's comments in regards to why 30 years of bad practice is easily explained as the effect of a planet's climate. Uh, they're literally trying to pin a manipulated global market crash on the Earth's changing climate. The whole climate hysteria is actually being ramped up to number 11 on Australian MSM at the moment. How interconnected is the current saturation of the climate hysteria and the imminent global economic meltdown? And he gives a couple of links to some ABC, Australian Broadcasting Corporation and uh, Reserve Bank of Australia documents backing up what he's talking about, the, the impact of climate change on the economy. Uh, yes, the point is that the climate change hysteria what it represents is a complete transformation of the economic model of the world. This is a point that's come up a number of times in my conversations with Patrick Wood, who points to, I believe it was Christina Le uh, Figueres, who was at the time the charge of the UN FCCC or one of the UN committees. Um, she was talking openly about how we, are, we have set ourselves the task of transforming the global economic model of the world. And they're, they're serious about this. They are truly transforming the entire economy towards what I talked about with Patrick Wood and in Why Big Oil Conquered the World and other work besides the new technocratic vision of an economy that is modeled on energy credits, carbon rations. This is the model for the future. It's probably going to be backed up by natural resources, by which we mean, of course, that the oligarchs are going to consolidate the use of those resources for themselves. The peons will get to live in highly centralized, tightly controlled urban spaces where they're allowed a certain amount of carbon rations, allowed a certain amount of food, allowed a certain amount to live. And that, of course, will decrease and decrease. That is the vision of the future. That is how this is being set up. Between here and there, there is absolutely going to be an economic crisis. You cannot bring in that new economic world order without destroying the old economic world order. Of course, it's going to be a controlled demolition, as it always is. And the, uh, again, the smart money is positioning itself for that transition. An exceptionally important topic. If you want more, please do go back and review all of my conversations with Patrick Wood. Perhaps most notably, the most recent one, where we address this in some detail. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one is a speak, another SpeakPipe audio question, this one in from Troy. Hi, James. So, okay, I get it. Climate change is nothing to fret about, all right? Um, so what, in your opinion, should people be doing 
to save the environment, save the earth. Um, what do you think are our pressing um, environmental problems? Um, yeah, I would. Yeah, I appreciate your responses to everything. Okay, thanks very much. Bye bye now. Okay, thank you for that question, Troy. And uh, yes, thank you for bringing this up because I know it comes up every time I'm when I'm talking about climate change and the climate change scam that people always say, "Well, what you do? You don't care about the Earth at all." That is the controlled paradigm that they're getting us to operate in. They're giving us the little window that if you care about the earth, you care about CO2. And that's it. And that's the only issue. And if you don't concentrate on that or if you poo-poo that, then you hate the earth. Sorry, that is a false dialectic, of course, that's been constructed to keep our minds in the box, in the paradigm. Um, I did an, a podcast on this way back a decade ago, more on environmentalism is corporate controlled that specifically made this point, the corporate hijacked environmental movement that is best represented by groups like the WWF and, and many others besides that are literally founded, funded and propagated and promoted by the oligarchs and eugenicists themselves, the royal family and all of those admitted open card-carrying eugenicists back in the day who set up all of these conservatories and all of this conservation groups were 100% are steering things towards this is all about setting up the new carbon economy that they'll get their hundred trillion dollar swindle from it has nothing to do with saving the earth which is why these groups do not concentrate or ever ask you to think about genetic engineering, literally changing the, the biome, the genome of the planet itself and doing this open air experimentation of, hey, let's just, you know, we'll change a few genes around here, a few genes around there, some transgenic species and really, oh, oops, it got out into the wild. Now it's, there's nothing we can do to bring it back. This is insanity and environmental groups never talk about this. It's always carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide. Think about the geoengineering in the skies. Uh, think about all the other things. We could add 5G and other things to that list now. Again, environmental harm from that? Ah, who cares? You know, the only environmental harm you have to think about is CO2. Uh, I, I don't even care if you are a CO2 scam believer, if you believe in that ridiculous hoax. At the very least, perhaps you could save a little bit of your concern for some other things in the environment, like the GMO issue, like... Uh, the 5G, like geoengineering. How about some of the intention on those things as well? I think that would be a good way to do that, don't you think? Um, again, I, I, I tend to think the people who don't care about the Earth are the people who only concentrate on the CO2 issue that they've been told by the mainstream press, no less, to, to concentrate on. Hmm, I wonder if there's some sort of trick going on here. Anyway, I'm not directing scorn or derision at you, Troy. I do appreciate the question. I know it's one that a lot of people have, but that's the point. They want to keep you in that paradigm, and the best way to do it is to say, if you care about the Earth, you care about CO2, and that's it. And anything outside of that spectrum is not allowed. It's garbage. It's nonsense, and it's uh, how they're keeping us back. All right. Uh, let's switch, switch gears dramatically, as I'm swarmed by insects here. Let's switch gears dramatically to something more lighthearted. This coming in from another Corporate Report member, CQ, but this time via email. Uh, CQ writes, James, I think you rattle off Russiagate, the Russiagate conspiracy theory video, faster than any previous conspiracy theory you've created. 9-11 a conspiracy theory, JFK a conspiracy theory, OKC a conspiracy theory, Syria strikes a conspiracy theory. Uh, do you agree? Did you have to practice the text over and over at top tongue, top tongue speed so you wouldn't make any mistakes in the final version? 
If this is a cut and paste video, which I highly doubt as no seams are detectable, do you have any funny outtakes you could share with Corporate Report members? <laughs> All right. Thank you for the, uh, the question, CQ. Yes, uh, well, I don't know if it's the fastest, but the, all of the conspiracy theory videos are obviously at very fast speed, and uh, you're very correct. No, I can't just instantly go into 100% flat out full speed. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot of takes to get each and every one of those sentences. Uh, there's multiple takes. And it's funny, actually, as I was putting together the Russiagate conspiracy theory video, uh, there was, uh, I can't remember which sentence it was now, but I remember reading that sentence. I think it was the P-tape sent sentence and reading it. And I literally, I couldn't stop, I couldn't stop laughing because it was, it, it really was so stupid. It's just, it's all so stupid. I was laughing at my own jokes, which I'm <laughs> not very humble, but hey, it's a good sign, right? So... Anyway, yeah, there are multiple outtakes of these things, but I didn't keep them. I actually thought at the time when I was, that was happening, I should keep that. But then I thought, well, no one will believe that that's genuine. Everyone will think I just laughed, you know, as to put it on so I could show people. No, I, I genuinely laughed reading my own stuff. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, there are outtakes. I, I've thought about that. I think I, um, I put some outtakes as an Easter egg on a podcast way back in the day when I used to do Easter eggs on the end of podcasts. And... Uh, there was an idea floating around. I can't remember if it was for the 300th New World Next Week or something like that. Some milestone New World Next Week. We'd been on... Uh, Brock has, from the point at which we start recording till we stop recording, which includes, of course, the New World Next Week, but we also talk a little bit before, a little bit after. And so he, Brock has a collection of just funny, silly things that we're saying off air. And, and the point, we were, we were talking about it for months in advance, I think. Well, oh, we're going to put together an outtake reel. You know, outtakes, funny things that we're saying, you know, in, for the 300th episode. And by the time we got there, Brock had had to delete all that because he had to make space on his hard drive. So <laughs> that was all gone. So we're like, ah, well, I don't think people really care about the outtakes anyway. At some point, I'm sure I might do some kind of blooper reel. But no one, no one really cares. That's not really the point of this, right? Anyway. But yeah, hilarity is had when these things are made. And, uh... <laughs> Trust me, yeah, there are multiple takes of things like the conspiracy theory videos before I can rattle it off at that speed. All right, uh, and finally, uh, as I say, I often end these uh, little questions for Corbett with a question for you, because I can't answer everything. So here's a good question for you. This one coming in from Sebastian, who writes, Are you aware of any good source for alternative news from slash about Brazil and Latin America in general? That's an excellent question. And the short answer is no. I am not an expert on Latin America. I don't pretend to be. And I don't keep up with the news there, um, except peripherally. I don't know of any good alternative news sites that keep their eye on Latin America specifically. So, Corporate Report members, I put it to you. Do you know any good sites uh, for news about Latin America? Preferably not from a mainstream perspective. It's a good question, and I hope there are some good answers, and maybe I can follow up and look into it and talk to other people. I'm always looking to expand my knowledge, but I don't want to pretend to be an expert on regions of the globe that I've never even visited, let alone know anything about. So, um, yeah, there you go. All right, so that's going to do it for this month's edition of Questions for Corbett. Once again, thank you all for your support, and thank you for bringing the questions in. I'm looking forward to doing this again next time. <laughs>